The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Russia scandal, now with mobsters. This is Thursday, June 22nd, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this show by using and bookmarking the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. We'll get to the mobsters and the other fast-growing developments in the Russia scandal, but the repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act could be just one week from today. That's when the vote is expected. And the replacement part has been cloaked in secrecy. Well into this week, even most Republicans couldn't tell you what was in it because even most Republicans in Congress hadn't seen it. Mitch McConnell promised we'd see it today. Trump says it'll be kinder than the House bill that was widely detested despite its passage by the Republican Congress, protecting more people with pre-existing conditions than the House plan did. But up till now, the contents of Trump care affecting the lives of millions have been known to just 13 men on the committee that assembled it. Even some of them say they haven't seen it. Democrats smelled more than one rat and held the Senate floor, preventing any forward movement earlier this week and hoping to force the bill back into committee. Republicans are drafting this bill in secret because they're ashamed of it, said Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. He said it was time to reveal the bill and the intentions of the Republicans who'd support it to, quote, give the uber-wealthy a tax break while making middle-class Americans pay more for less health care coverage. Schumer said that if the bill remains secret, the Republicans should not expect business as usual on the Senate floor. Quoting a university expert on health policy, I've never seen anything like it as far as the secrecy. Even some Republicans are not happy about the secrecy of a health care bill that could affect the lives of tens of millions of Americans. Interestingly, a poll taken about the Republican Senate bill that no one has seen, 49% of us oppose it, 36% support it, and 16% said they either don't know or had no opinion. With all the uncertainty in the insurance market caused by uncertainty over the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare, Anthem Insurance has now pulled out of two more states, the red states of Indiana and Wisconsin. The Washington Post got a look at one of the final drafts of the Republican bill and found it makes huge cuts in Medicaid despite a Trump promise not to touch Medicaid. The Senate bill looks a lot like the House bill that was so hugely unpopular, except that it does provide more subsidies for low-income Americans, while at the same time cutting the health care program for low-income Americans. And it removes the punishment for getting older. That was such a controversial part of the House bill. Rates would now be based on income, not age but it rolls back the taxes that helped pay for the now popular Affordable Care Act, drastically cuts Medicaid three years from now, and makes it easier for states to opt out of the rules. Like the House bill, it also eliminates funding for Planned Parenthood. As this report is released, it does not appear the new Senate bill has enough Republican votes to pass, despite the Senate's Republican majority. Republican moderates are skeptical. Republican conservatives are skeptical. Senators want time in both parties. Senators want time to read and comment on the bill, while Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wants it passed before the lawmakers return home next week for their July 4th break. And even if this new bill passes, it still has to get past the even more conservative House before it can ever become a bill that Trump could sign. We got another stark reminder yesterday that the U.S. was cyber-attacked by Russia in the 2016 election. The acting head of Homeland Security Cyber Division told the Senate Intelligence Committee he couldn't say what effect Russian meddling had on the outcome. Dr. Sam Lyles testified that nothing that was part of the vote counting was changed, but that, quote, they made it through the door. Voter data in at least 21 and perhaps as many as 39 states got hacked, including Illinois and Arizona, that we know for sure. Democratic Dallas County was among the places hacked, and the invading IP addresses were Russian, 17 of them. Nearby Republican counties in Texas were not invaded, just Democratic Dallas County. One way to affect the vote without getting into the vote counting machines is to disqualify voters by disrupting the registration rolls. 
Former Homeland Security Chief Jade Johnson testified that Russia's meddling was unprecedented. He knew the Russians had hacked into the emails of Clinton's campaign manager and the Democratic Party. He tried to warn them. Johnson said he did everything but camp outside their offices to get the Democrats to tighten their security. Johnson says he was disappointed when Clinton and the DNC declined his offer of help. Johnson said this publicly on October 7th because he said the voters needed to know, even if his claim would be considered political. He says the media was more focused that day on the Access Hollywood tape that featured Trump bragging about grabbing women by the genitals. Important, perhaps, but not as important as a Russian attack. How easy would it be to access the data on 198 million U.S. voters? For nearly two weeks this month, it was very, very easy. A Republican data contractor accidentally left the info on every one of those 198 million voters. Names, addresses, birth dates, multiple phone numbers, and voter registration information, even political preferences. The list was put together by a contractor for the Republican National Committee based on public government records, party pollsters, and social media. I could give you the home address of every person the RNC believes voted for Trump, says cybersecurity analyst Chris Vickery. He found the list over a terabyte of spreadsheets on Amazon's cloud server, 51 spreadsheets for the 50 states plus Washington, D.C. The person who put the list on the cloud failed to set a password. That person no longer works for the data company. He's now in charge of personnel for the Trump administration. With this exposed data, says the analyst who found it, you can target neighborhoods, individuals, people of all sorts of persuasions. The Republicans' million-dollar contractor did take responsibility for the screw-up and has since put security in place, a password at the very least, after 12 days in open access. It appears somebody is helping to blow the lid off the Russia investigation, and that somebody appears to be Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor hired and fired by Donald Trump. And it may be the president and the vice president who have the most to lose from what Flynn has to say. The disgraced Army general may have flipped as much as three months ago, becoming a cooperative witness for the FBI agents who are now working for special counsel Robert Mueller. As a flurry of subpoenas are issued in the Russia investigation, none of them are aimed at Flynn, as if he's being protected by investigators who want to keep tapping him for information. Back in March, the normally talkative Flynn suddenly stopped talking publicly and finally registered as a foreign agent, two things he would be required to do as an FBI witness. Mike Flynn's lawyer says Flynn pleaded the fifth before Congress to avoid, quote, an escalating public frenzy against him. A senator on that body's intelligence committee says all signs point to Flynn becoming a witness for the prosecution because, quote, they had him dead to rights on a felony false statement. Flynn had lied to nearly everyone about his involvement with Ukraine and Russia, and when you lie to the FBI, as Flynn did, you've committed a felony. Officials also appear to have Flynn on a trillion-dollar deal to give Saudi Arabia nuclear power technology that would spread reactors throughout the Arab world, on the condition those Arab countries purchase $100 billion worth of weapons from Russia. The pressure is on for Flynn to keep talking with investigators, especially in light of this new information. In his financial declarations, Flynn recorded money he'd made from a speech he claimed to have given in Saudi Arabia, but it appears he was never there. The receipt for his accommodations were from a hotel that doesn't exist in the course of a deal with Russia that he didn't report. If Flynn wants to avoid prison or keep his sentence to a minimum, he'll talk and keep talking about what he knows about connections between Russia and all things Trump. If he knows what's good for him, Flynn would testify against the President of the United States. And yes, Trump and Vice President Pence do have the most to lose. It was Pence whose job it was to vet Flynn to make sure he was right for the job as Trump's national security advisor. And although Pence claims Flynn lied to him about meeting with the Russian ambassador, Pence had already gotten written warnings from Flynn's own lawyers about Flynn's foreign entanglements during the transition. You can be lied to and still know the truth, and that appears to be the case with Pence and Flynn. It was Trump who was warned against hiring Mike Flynn by President Obama. It was Trump who kept Flynn on as his security briefer, for nearly three weeks after a Justice Department official warned Trump that Flynn was a potential target for Russian blackmail. 
And it was Trump who, at least for a while, tried to stay in touch with Flynn even after firing him following the shortest tenure of a national security advisor in American history. Trump has reportedly told the fired Flynn to stay strong, which could legally be construed as manipulation of a witness and or obstruction of justice. Who knows what Trump has said to him, asked Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of the Senate Intelligence Committee. We may be getting closer to finding out, especially if Flynn isn't the last one to flip. It's not unusual for CIA directors to be secretive, but not usually with a Senate committee. The Judiciary Committee recently asked Trump CIA Director Mike Pompeo to answer a few questions about what he knew, if anything, about Trump's meeting with then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. Pompeo started as CIA Director three days before Yates went to Trump, warning that Mike Flynn was a security risk since the Russians knew Flynn was lying. By that time, the FBI and the CIA had already met with Flynn and reviewed the transcripts of conversations between Flynn and the Russian ambassador. Despite all of this, Trump kept Flynn on the job that extra three weeks, sitting in on the top-secret briefings from CIA Director Mike Pompeo. If Pompeo knew that Flynn was compromised, he never mentioned it to Trump, and he kept briefing Flynn. Pompeo just kept briefing Mike Flynn with the nation's highest level of intelligence, top-secret CIA intelligence. And now, Pompeo still hasn't answered the Senate's questions. The Judiciary Committee also wants to know why Pompeo and National Intelligence Director Mike Coates were asked to stay behind after one security briefing. It was in that after-meeting that Coates told Associates Trump had asked him to help clear the cloud of the Russia investigation. We now, this morning, have an explanation from Coates and NSA Director Mike Rogers about what Trump asked of them and why they wouldn't talk about it in open session with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Sources tell CNN that Coates and Rogers say Trump asked them to say publicly he, Trump, was not under investigation, something Trump could not get FBI Director James Comey to do. Coates and Rogers reportedly say Trump's request made them uncomfortable and they chose not to do as he'd requested. They've now reportedly told the special counsel and the intelligence committee behind closed doors that they wouldn't answer questions about this in open session because they never got an answer from the White House about whether that conversation was considered protected by executive privilege. And the subpoenas are flying, most of them from the Eastern District of Virginia's grand jury. That grand jury has just subpoenaed two dozen people connected to former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and Manafort's wife. This is the same grand jury that's still investigating Mike Flynn, and it's a grand jury that typically handles cases of intelligence and national security. So there's that. Considering that there is an investigation into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia to impact the presidential election, and considering the things Donald Trump has said and done during that investigation, logic dictates the president is under investigation for obstruction of justice. Former FBI Director James Comey, testifying under oath, told congressional investigators he believes the president is now under investigation by the special counsel for obstruction, even though Comey admits that wasn't the case when he was fired, which in itself is considered by some to be an attempt at obstruction. On Thursday of last week, the Washington Post reported that the president is in fact under investigation for obstruction since the special counsel is interviewing three men who were not part of the Trump campaign but were around when Trump made what appeared to be multiple attempts to influence or stop the investigation. One of those men, National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, told friends that Trump had asked him to have a word with the FBI about the Russia probe, although Coates earlier wouldn't confirm that publicly. And then on Friday, the president with itchy Twitter fingers wrote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. The key words in that tweet seem to be, I am being investigated. But on Sunday, one of the president's personal lawyers hired to defend Trump in the Russia mess said emphatically, the president is not and has not been under investigation for obstruction. So despite the president's words and deeds, despite multiple press reports, and despite the president's own admission, one of his lawyers says there's nothing to see here. Still, there are many indications the president of the United States is under investigation for trying to obstruct justice, including the investigations of the Senate committees. 
The House Judiciary Committee is apparently not investigating these concerns, saying it will leave that to Special Counsel Robert Mueller. The chairman of that committee is Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, a strong supporter of Trump. But the Senate Judiciary Committee may be about to dive in. Ranking Democrat Dianne Feinstein's written a letter to Chairman Chuck Grassley asking for testimony from embattled Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former FBI Director James Comey, and his memos. The associates Comey told about his talks with and notes about Trump. National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, National Security Advisor Mike Rogers, the Deputy FBI Director, and others from the Justice Department. It would appear to be a witness list and a case for presidential obstruction, contrary to what one of Trump's lawyers says. Religious right lawyer Jay Sekulow, first spotted by Trump on Fox News. Sekulow is now apparently the face of the team since he's the one who went on TV Sunday morning to say that Trump is, quote, not afraid of the investigation, that there is no investigation of the president, period, end quote. There are now three personal lawyers working to defend Trump against the Russia scandal. That includes Sekulow, but is headed up by Mark Kazowitz, a divorce and real estate lawyer who's lost cases for Trump before and who's facing ethics complaints of his own. Kazowitz, as head of Trump's legal team, has no experience in government law. Neither does the aforementioned Jay Sekulow. Sekulow has bragged that he did get the top federal prosecutor fired in New York City, Preet Bharara. Kasowitz told a friend he warned Trump, that guy's out to get you. That guy, as I mentioned, was Preet Bharara, a U.S. attorney who would have led investigations of Trump's New York-based businesses, fired by Trump in the earliest days of his presidency. But now also on the Trump personal legal team is John Dowd, who has extensive experience in white-collar crime and may be the team's best asset. Trump's had trouble finding lawyers willing to represent him, some because of Trump's history of not paying lawyers. Vice President Mike Pence has also hired a private attorney to fend off Russia trouble, and Pence chose well. His lawyer is Richard Cullen, an experienced federal criminal attorney who's handled politically sensitive cases before. Cullen was the special counsel in the Reagan-era Iran-Contra investigation and was a congressional staff member in the Watergate investigation. Because he is not a wealthy man, Mike Pence will have to figure out how to pay a lawyer that's this good. As luck would have it, the vice president recently started a leadership pack he calls the Great American Committee, and that committee had a very high-dollar fundraiser in Indianapolis Friday night. Critics say that if Vice President Pence were using political fundraising to cover his considerable legal fees, that would, according to one legal observer, raise concerns. Last night, a spokesman for Pence told Rachel Maddow on MSNBC that the vice president is not using funds from that pack for his legal defense. So for now, that's one lawyer for Pence and a team of lawyers for Trump from highly qualified to not-so-qualified attorneys. The president and the vice president have lawyered up. Even one of the president's personal lawyers has lawyered up. Michael Cohen, who's represented and advised Trump for years, has hired a lawyer to represent him in the Russia investigation. Cohen was vice president of the Trump organization during the campaign and often spoke for Trump on TV. So even the lawyers are getting lawyers. The special counsel has lawyered up as well, in a sense. Top investigator Robert Mueller has now hired over a dozen additional lawyers with appropriate experience to assist him in his multi-pronged investigation. The Washington Post says the attorneys hired by Mueller have brought with them a total of 85 years' experience in the Justice Department, 37 years' experience with the FBI. Some have experience in Watergate. Investigating is what they do and Mueller plans to hire more. The investigation is expanding. Trump remains in denial, still calling the investigations a witch hunt led by, quote, some very bad and conflicted people. In another tweet, Trump said the investigation turned to obstruction because it had reached a dead end on collusion. Not true. Not true at all. This is far from over. Senator Angus King says he can say categorically the collusion aspect of the investigation is not over. Quoting him, I'd say we're about 20% into it. This is a very complex matter involving thousands of pages of intelligence documents, lots of witnesses. There's a lot of information yet to go, end quote. 
A new poll has 63% of us disapproving of the way Trump's handling the Russians' three-pronged attack on our election system. Fewer than one in three of us approve. Just over one in three approve of the president overall. So much winning doesn't seem likely. While the events of last week did focus on obstruction, the focus this week has turned to collusion and Trump's financial ties to Russia. After some foot dragging, the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Unit is finally handing over to Senate investigators papers concerning the president's money deals involving Russians. ABC News reports that, among other things, that Financial Crimes Unit was looking at the investors who helped finance a Trump building in New York's Soho district. The investors were rounded up by a partnership involving Trump and Russian mobster Felix Sater. Sater once stabbed a guy in the face with the stem of a martini glass and went to prison for it. Seventeen years ago, Sater was convicted in a $40 million stock fraud scheme. Sater pleaded guilty but never went to jail because the U.S. government put him to work as an informant in the Russian mob for ten years. But also during that 10 years, Sater partnered with Trump to invest in at least three properties. One was never built. Another was built and foreclosed. Only the Soho building remains. The Trump-Sater partnership, known as Bayrock, was then dissolved, but Sater stayed on with Trump's company as an advisor. A racketeering lawsuit against Felix Sater's old company, filed by one of his ex-employees, has just been allowed to go forward. That ex-employee tells Bloomberg News that Bayrock took money from some foreign investors, but not others. That former employee says that when an Icelandic investor asked why, he was told they had to take Felix's funds for deals with Trump because Felix's firm was, quote, closer to Putin, end quote. Documents from the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Unit are now in the hands of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Quoting committee member Ron Wyden, I believe these documents will be sufficient to start following the money. And the prosecutor who nailed Felix Sater for stock fraud 17 years ago now works for special counsel Robert Mueller. Bob Seska will comment on the Sater investigation and more in the second segment today. But there's also still a focus on collusion, possible cooperation between members of the Trump campaign team and the Russians who worked to impact the 2016 election. The House Intelligence Committee wants to hear from the Trump campaign's digital director, Brad Pascal, to ask him how Russian bots got political messages into specific districts in swing states. Those Russian bots appeared on Facebook as real Trump supporters. They weren't. They weren't people. They were bots. Russian bots posting fake news for those in a mood to read it and believe it. Fake news was posted from crucial districts in the Rust Belt, districts that flipped from blue to red in the 2016 election, helping Trump into the White House. Parscale was a vital part of the Trump campaign's voter targeting, using a highly sophisticated data bank from the Republican National Committee. In the words of the Senate Intelligence Committee's ranking Democrat Mark Warner, would the Russians on their own have that level of sophisticated knowledge about the American political system if they didn't get some advice from someone in America? And it was Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who oversaw the Trump campaign's data operations. Kushner's business dealings and their possible connection to Russian interference are already the focus of one of the investigations run by special counsel Robert Mueller. We learned three weeks ago that Kushner was one of the targets of that investigation as the feds look into meetings Kushner had with the Russian ambassador and a Russian banker who was trained by Russia's modern KGB, the FSB. We also know that Kushner discussed establishing a back channel of communications directly with the Kremlin. At the moment, Kushner is bound for the Middle East to pursue an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal. We've learned a little more about the business dealings of Donald Trump. The financial disclosure report required by the government ethics office is not as detailed as a tax return, which Trump continues to hide. But in this 98-page report, we see Trump made $288 million in the past year just from his private golf clubs. In the past five months, a good portion of that income came from taxpayers, accommodating the president's desire to weekend somewhere other than Camp David, at least until this past weekend. Trump made over $37 million from Mar-a-Lago, the Florida club and a state that he's preferred on most of his presidential weekends. It was there that Trump hosted the president of China while ordering steaks and airstrikes on Syria. 
Compared to the same five months last year, Mar-a-Lago's income is up by nearly $7.5 million. The tabloid Trump made $7 million off his book, $11 million from the Miss Universe pageant, and an $84,000 pension from the Screen Actors Guild. The statement says Trump sold all of his stock holdings at this time last year. It also says he has at least 16 outstanding loans. The report reveals one loan of somewhere between 5 and $25 million, with total liabilities of at least $311 million. What we don't see, what we would only see in his tax returns, is how many of Trump's dollars come from other countries, who his investors are, or who buys his condos and other properties, both here in the U.S. and abroad. We cannot see his profits and losses, or what he claimed for deductions, or how much he paid in taxes, or whether he has foreign bank accounts, or exactly how he would benefit for the tax changes that he's proposed. Without his taxes, we cannot see whether he has foreign connections that would be a security risk, or whether, with his foreign dealings, Trump is in violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The law does not require a president to release their tax forms, although all of the ones in modern history have. Some blue states have been working on bills to require a candidate to release their tax returns or not get on the ballot. So far, that's all we've got. It was 45 years ago this past weekend that Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein reported on a break-in at Democratic headquarters and followed that story through the resignation of a president, Richard Nixon. One of the plainclothes D.C. cops who caught the burglars slash saboteurs says, quote, it scared the bejesus out of me when his arm bumped into a glass partition as he was trying to sneak up on the burglars. Quoting one of the Senate investigators in that early 70s scandal, what was important about Watergate, however long it took, it eventually got to the truth. From beginning to end, Watergate lasted 26 months, now 45 years ago. Quoting a Nixon historian at NYU, the student of presidential activity has to ask, what happens when a president gets frustrated? What happens when he doesn't get his way? What can happen, says the professor, is abuse of power. Up next. Tensions with Russia, North Korea, and Cuba. Officers walk in black motorist shootings. Guns, opioids, and a hot forecast. Plus comments from Bob Seska after this. With everything that's going on, it's easy to forget stuff, right? Including birthdays and anniversaries. Oh, was it your sister this time? Your mom, maybe? Your spouse? Was it with ProFlowers.com, you can schedule their gift ahead of time, any date you wish, and then get back to your life. It's a special gift of beauty right to their door without costing a fortune. And with Pro Flowers, it's always a perfect gift, guaranteed fresh for seven days of your money back, and they're not kidding about that. I've used Pro Flowers time and again, and they've never, ever let me or her down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at the door. And right now, because you listen to this report, you can save 10 bucks on any order of $29 or more if you enter the code RELM when you check out at ProFlowers.com. Flowers for as little as 19 bucks when you type in the code R-E-L-M in the upper right corner. And that $10 off also applies to a range of flowers and plants, including a dozen red roses or their famous 100 Blooms bouquet. And if you do forget a birthday or anniversary or forget just about anything, apologize with flowers, save 10 bucks, and help power this show with the code R-E-L-M at proflowers.com. Thank you for using my sponsors and for also supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Even under Republican control, the Senate last week made it harder for Trump to weaken the sanctions in place against Russia. In fact, that same bill adds new sanctions against Russia and Iran. The Senate spoke with certainty, Republicans and Democrats alike. The vote was 98 to 2 when they voted to keep hurting Russia, considering it's accused of trying to influence our presidential election. And they voted to keep Trump from removing sanctions against Russia without the approval of the Senate. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said Trump needs the flexibility of give and take with those sanctions, which Tillerson says Trump needs as bargaining chips. And it has come to this. Russia now says it will consider as targets any U.S. warplanes it sees in the skies over western Syria. That after our Navy shot down a Syrian government fighter jet after that jet had dropped bombs on forces backed by the United States. 
This was the third U.S. attack on the Russian-backed Syrian military, the first being Trump's April missile strike against the Syrian airbase. In May, the U.S. also attacked Syrian government military vehicles for crossing into a no-fire zone, now shooting down a Syrian jet. Quoting a former NATO Supreme Allied commander, we're headed toward a Russian aircraft shot down by coalition forces if we're not careful. Despite all this, the U.S. shot down an Iranian drone Tuesday over Syria that was flying in support of Syria's government military. The Australian Air Force has now suspended its operations in Syria because of the rising tensions between the U.S. and Russia and Russia's allies, including Iran. And Russia now claims that one of our F-16s was intimidating a jet carrying Russia's defense minister. None of this is good. As if the tension with North Korea weren't bad enough, the young American they sent home in a coma last week died this week. At least we got him home to be with his parents, where they were so happy to see him, even though he was in a very tough condition, said the president. 22-year-old Otto Warmbier, a college student touring North Korea, took a souvenir poster as he was heading home. He was arrested and publicly humiliated and imprisoned for over a year. His parents say he was subjected to awful, torturous treatment. A lot of bad things happened, said the president. But Trump said it deepened his administration's commitment to prevent such tragedies at the hands of regimes that do not respect law or human decency. The head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says the U.S. will continue to rely on diplomacy and economic punishments in dealing with North Korea. Senator John McCain says North Korea murdered the American student. South Korea also blames North Korea for the death of young Otto Warmbier of Cincinnati, and South Korea offers its condolences. Six of its own citizens are behind bars in North Korea. The tour company Warm Beer used says it's no longer offering tours to North Korea. North Korea, on the other hand, has now started promoting its tourist industry in China and has no comment on Warm Beer's death. Everywhere else, the focus turns to the three Americans still being held in North Korean prisons and North Korea's other human rights abuses but North Korean officials are reportedly worried about what the U.S. might do after the death of Otto Warmbier. And in a tweet, Trump appeared to say the U.S. was ready to go it alone, that China tried to help with North Korea, but, quote, it hasn't worked out. Busy tweeting about the Russia investigation, Trump waited two days to tweet about the seven sailors missing and then found dead in the belly of a Navy destroyer after that collision with a Japanese ship it's the kind of thing Trump could discuss with his ambassador to Japan, if he had one. It's the kind of thing he could discuss with his Navy secretary, if he had one. Trump has yet to fill those and scores of other executive branch vacancies. There is much we still don't know about the Japanese collision, including the exact time it occurred. We also learned this week that the Pentagon appears to have wasted nearly $30 million on uniforms for the Afghan military. They were forestry camouflage for soldiers fighting in the desert. Only 2% of Afghanistan is forest. The Pentagon paid extra for these uniforms since the forestry pattern is owned by a private company that must be paid for the use of that pattern. We learned that switching to a non-patented U.S. Army battle uniform, taxpayers could save about $70 million over the next 10 years. This news comes as the U.S. is poised to invest even more in that 17-year war. The president has, by the way, modified his plans for that border wall, even as companies have already put in bids on the project. Trump now says he wants it to be a solar wall that would pay for itself by selling the electricity it generates. Trump turned this week to a county sheriff in Wisconsin to be his homeland security liaison, but Milwaukee Sheriff David Clark Jr. said no, even though he's been a staunch Trump supporter. Clark's first answer was yes, but he's since decided, quote, his skills could be better utilized to promote the president's agenda in a more aggressive role. That could mean Milwaukee Sheriff Clark is gunning for a bigger title. In the meantime, Homeland Security staffers are reportedly breathing a sigh of relief that Clark's not coming. A former assistant secretary said she was floored by the news that Clark might run Homeland, and she felt sorry for the career staffers left behind who might have served under Clark. Popular Democratic Senator Kamala Harris called Clark's record unconscionable and called him 
unfit to serve. As it works to erase nearly everything Obama, the Trump administration is now freezing rules that put certain requirements on for-profit colleges and protected people with student loans. Those protections are gone, at least for now, and likely for the duration of this presidency. Under the now-paused Obama rule, for-profit schools could have lost federal aid for failing to show how their educations would get students jobs. The Obama rules also set up a fast track for students who attended for-profit colleges that went out of business, a fast track for those students to apply to have their loans forgiven. Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says she wants to protect students, but she says the Obama rules just didn't get it right. In the meantime, 16,000 student borrowers will have to wait while the Obama order is on hold. Among the Obama decisions being unraveled by Trump are the ones that tried to improve relations with Cuba. Trump has now restricted travel to and from Cuba. That freedom has been rolled back to group travel that's restricted from hotels and businesses owned by the Cuban government and its military. Trump was delivering another campaign promise in doing this when he announced his partial reversal, pleasing to fellow Republicans who also opposed the warming of relations without more reforms in Cuba. Trump wants to use the recent freedoms as a carrot on a stick to induce Cuba to improve its human rights. But Trump's also withdrawn the U.S. offer to ease the trade embargo against Cuba. The U.S. embassy in Havana remains open, even though it was Obama who opened it. Cuban's foreign minister says Trump's shift of U.S. policy rescues icebergs from the Cold War and is absolutely unsustainable. Trump made the shift to try to get a better deal in a relationship with Cuba. Cuba's foreign minister says his country, quote, will not negotiate. Before moving on to other news, here's more on Trump's business dealings with Russia and mobster Felix Sater in this week's commentary from Salon.com writer Bob Sesco. Thank you, Buzz. This is what happens when candidates aren't fully vetted during their campaigns. We end up with political leaders like Donald Trump, who, even if he spilled the beans about his myriad skeletons, might have won the election anyway, given that he was somehow capable of surviving daily scandals that would have annihilated any other presidential contenders. Despite an exhaustive election season that seemed to last for years, we're only now, nearly 200 days into his presidency, learning more details about Trump's duplicity, his ignorance, and his dark secrets, including, yes, his ties to both Russia and organized crime. Back in late February, we first learned about a Trump-linked character named Felix Sater. At the time, we discovered that Sater, along with Trump's personal lawyer Michael Cohen, approached then-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn with what the New York Times described as a peace plan for Ukraine. Flynn apparently rejected the plan, but had it been accepted and delivered in turn to the president, it would have significantly undermined Ukrainian sovereignty with terms that heavily favored the Kremlin, of course, including evidence of possible corruption by Ukraine President Petro Poroshenko. Cohen and Sater were joined in the deal by an ambitious Ukrainian politician named Andrei Artemenko, who fancies himself as a Ukrainian version of Trump. As for Cohen, Trump's lawyer confirmed to the Times that he did, in fact, deliver an envelope to Flynn's office at the White House. But then, in keeping with the whiplash messaging of Trump and his people, Cohen denied to NBC News ever meeting with Flynn, though he did, in fact, confirm that he met with Artemenko. Additionally, Cohen confirmed knowing Sater on a first-name basis, telling NBC, quote, I've known Felix for years. I'm not sure that's something Cohen ought to be bragging about, especially given the attorney's close ties to the president. According to a brand new bombshell article by journalist Timothy O'Brien reporting for Bloomberg, Sater is heavily linked to organized crime, including apparently both La Cosa Nostra and the Russian mob. Sater, we learned, was involved with what's called a pump and dump scam on Wall Street, in which Russian and American mobsters artificially boosted the value of junk stocks, then sold the commodities at ridiculously overinflated prices. In the end, it was a $40 million swindle, with unsuspecting investors being screwed out of piles of cash. At one point, too, Sater served prison time for stabbing a guy in the face with a broken bottle, requiring more than 100 stitches to repair his victim's Tyrion Lannister-style laceration. He also pleaded guilty on charges of stock manipulation for the pump-and-dump plot and ended up becoming an informant for the FBI and the CIA in lieu of prison time, helping the intelligence community track down loose U.S.-made Stinger missiles. 
But all of this went down after Sater had gone into hiding in Moscow, then turning himself into American authorities and later bragging about his ties to the KGB. Elsewhere, Trump had been exiled to the financial wilderness after his infamous Atlantic City casino investments crashed and burned in spectacular fashion. He ended up squeaking by without having to personally file bankruptcy, unlike his businesses. And in the early 2000s, Trump linked up with Sater and a real estate investment group known as Bayrock, with which Trump, along with his son Donald Jr. and his daughter Ivanka, closed a variety of deals between 2002 and 2011. By the way, it's worth noting that Bayrock was founded with a considerable infusion of Russian cash. All of this according to O'Brien's reporting in Bloomberg. This news would also lend additional credibility to an article quoting Eric Trump as saying, quote, We don't rely on American banks. We have all the funding we need out of Russia. Through Bayrock, the Trump family was able to bring in Russian investment capital when American banks refused to give the Trumps the time of day. Much, if not all, of the capital was reportedly laundered cash via easily pliable overseas banks. Speaking of money laundering, O'Brien reported that a former employee named Jody Chris departed from and sued Bayrock, charging that the firm, again a firm directly linked to Trump and his two kids, was engaged in money laundering. The lawsuit eventually morphed into a racketeering case. Trump seemed to welcome the money, regardless of how it was attained. Bloomberg quoted the president from a 2007 deposition, quote, It's ridiculous that I wouldn't be invested in Russia. Russia is one of the hottest places in the world for investment, unquote. In his sworn testimony, Trump added that officials from Bayrock visited his office at Trump Tower to talk about deals with Russia. More recently, however, Trump contradicted his sworn testimony, denying in public having ever done business with Russians of any stripe. Trump also denied knowing Sater, despite being photographed with him. See also the top of the Bloomberg item. Furthermore, Sater and Bayrock leased their offices in Trump Tower, two floors below Trump's own office. So it seems everyone, including Cohen, Don Jr., Ivanka, maybe even Eric, knows Sater, except Donald Trump himself. Per Bloomberg, Chris noted accurately that Trump is generally ensconced in all of his own deals, with the final say on anything that goes down. Chris also said that Sater and Trump met in Trump's office, quote, on a constant basis. Has Trump given us any reason to believe his word over, hell, anyone else's word? No way. Not only does the Trump-Sater linkage provide startling evidence indicating that Trump's been lying about his relationship with Moscow and Russian money, but it also speaks volumes about the kind of underworld characters Trump's been willing to align with over the years. It makes sense that Trump would treat his White House, including former officials like James Comey, as if Trump's the Don, literally and figuratively, of a powerful mafia family, complete with loyalty oaths and ham-fisted efforts at intimidation. It's impossible to know for sure, but it wouldn't shock me to learn that Trump never really wanted to be president. But now that he's actually been plunked down behind the resolute desk, thanks Putin, He's politically weaponized some of the same tactics he learned during countless shifty Manhattan real estate deals in order to conceal his admitted links to Moscow, not to mention links to various bad actors lurking on the periphery of legitimacy. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on the Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com, and I'm proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. On the surface, the Republicans prevailed in a couple of special elections this week, but those races advanced Democratic chances in the 2018 midterm elections, provided we all vote. These were districts Republicans spent no money on because they believed they were in safely Republican territory. The Democrats saw it as a chance to test the strength or weakness of the Republican Party based on the performance and persona of Donald Trump. One race the Republicans should have won by a mile is in Georgia's 6th District, where Republican Karen Handel beat Democratic John Ossoff, but just barely. And Ossoff doesn't even currently live in the district, which may have hurt him. His affiliation with Nancy Pelosi definitely hurt him. But this close race was in a district that hadn't voted Democrat since 1979 when Carter was president. It was the most expensive House race in history at over $55 million dollars. The Republican also won in South Carolina's 5th District, 51% to 48. And while close does not win elections, Democrats have come close, frighteningly close for Republicans who are watching the clock tick on the Russia story toward those 2018 midterms. 
Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise was upgraded from critical to serious condition this week and then upgraded again to fair condition. That followed multiple surgeries after he was shot by a man who hated Republicans and Donald Trump. The gunman who opened fire on a congressional baseball practice was killed by officers who saved many lives that day. And it brought at least a moment of harmony for some lawmakers and perhaps more long-lasting for others. The charity game for which they'd been practicing went on and raised twice as much money as last year. Many people learning about the annual game's 108-year existence for the very first time. And after beating the Republicans 11-2, Democrats gave this year's trophy to Congressman Scalise. He was the most badly wounded, was admitted to a hospital in critical condition with an eminent risk of death, to quote the doctor. Over the weekend, Scalise was watching LSU in the College World Series. After at least a handful of surgeries, Scalise had improved to serious condition, now upgraded to fair, but he remains in the hospital and perhaps will for some time because he needs rehabilitation after being shot in the hip, damaging internal organs and costing him a lot of blood. Two other people wounded by the gunman are also still in the hospital this week but expected to completely recover. One of the officers wounded throughout the first pitch in the women's congressional baseball game last night. The FBI says the attack was not terrorism and that the shooter acted alone. The FBI says 66-year-old James Hodgkinson did have a list of six members of Congress. He had researched two of the lawmakers on that list and two of them were at that game. The names and political affiliations of those lawmakers for the most part have not been made public, but none of the injured were on that list. Hodgkinson had photos of the park he'd taken two months before the shooting. He'd been posting angry comments about Republicans and Donald Trump and reportedly had anger issues of his own. He also had 200 rounds of ammunition in a nearby storage locker. That investigation continues. The stabbing of a police officer in the Flint, Michigan airport yesterday morning does appear to be terror-related. The Canadian who attacked the officer allegedly shouted Allah Akbar as he closed in with a blank look on his face, Arabic for God is great. It also appears this man acted alone. He was taken into custody for questioning. The FBI says it is looking for a terror connection. It's a story far too familiar but important enough to repeat. A pregnant woman living in an apartment in Seattle called the police to report a burglary. She picked up a knife, presumably for self-defense, and she was still holding that knife when police arrived and police shot her dead. The officers say she had threatened them and that on a police visit two weeks ago for a domestic disturbance, she was brandishing a pair of scissors back then. Instead of simply disabling the woman, the officers used deadly force. They killed her. But the shooting death of this 30-year-old mother of four, Charlena Lyles, has been sharply criticized for being the wrong way for the officers to respond. Even the department has admitted that policy calls for using less lethal options. That department is now investigating the shooting while the officers are on paid leave. In Minnesota, the officer who shot and killed Philandro Castile has been fired but acquitted on the even milder second-degree murder charge. Castile, a locally popular black man, was ostensibly pulled over by Officer Geronimo Yanez for having a broken tail light. Yanez asks for license and registration. Castile advises the officer he does have a firearm in the car and then reaches for the papers the officer requested. The dash cam video has the officer yelling at Castile, Okay, don't reach for it. I'm not pulling it out, says Castile. The officer repeats himself and then fires eight shots into the car with Philandro Castile's little girl in the back seat and his girlfriend seated next to him. The officer with Yanez that day testified he was absolutely surprised when his partner opened fire. Yanez was fired, but he goes free to the outrage of millions. And in Milwaukee, an officer was found not guilty after shooting to death Silville Smith last summer, sparking days of angry protests. 25-year-old officer Dominique Hagen-Brown had been charged with reckless homicide and could have faced up to 60 years in prison. After the suspect had hurled his weapon over a fence and raised his hands to surrender, Hagen-Brown fired two shots into Smith's chest. Sobbing by the victim's family prompted the judge to clear the courtroom when the body cam video was played for the jury. An expert on police use of force testified the young officer 
had acted, quote, in accordance with his training, end quote. But Hagen Brown was fired not because of the killing, but because of his involvement in a sexual assault investigation separately. In Ferguson, Missouri, that city has now settled the wrongful death lawsuit filed by Michael Brown's family. We don't know the amount. The agreement is secret. A judge approved it, calling it fair and reasonable and in the interest of each plaintiff. Based on Ferguson's insurance policy, that amount would be under $3 million. Ferguson's political and legal system have changed since the killing of Mike Brown, but the fired officer in that case also went free. Every day in this country, 19 children are wounded by gunfire for a total of nearly 6,000 kids a year. Every year, well over 1,000 American kids die from guns. More than half the deaths are homicides, over a third are suicides. Child suicide by gun is up 60% just since Obama ran for president the first time and a gun-loving nation began to stock up on firearms. 6% of the children who die from a bullet wound were killed or killed themselves accidentally, usually in a home where a gun or guns are kept to protect the family. Accidental child deaths from gunfire are thankfully down a bit. Gunfire is, however, the third leading cause of death for kids aged 1 to 17. Most of those who die are boys, or black, or both, and most often in the South or Midwest. Boys make up more than 80% of the children killed by guns. Pediatric surgeons say it's one of our pressing nationwide health problems and should be addressed as just that. Any other product on the market that killed 1,300 children and wounded over 5,000 others would no longer be on the market. The NRA had no comment on these latest figures from a CDC study now published in the journal Pediatrics. One of our other pressing health issues is the frighteningly large opioid epidemic in this country. Police and emergency personnel stay busy coast-to-coast coast responding to overdoses that often end in death. The overdose rate is up sharply as heroin users switch to fentanyl, and that's not a choice they necessarily made consciously. Dealers started boosting their heroin and black market OxyContin with increasing amounts of fentanyl, a drug thousand times more powerful than morphine. It wasn't that heroin users were knowingly trying to get higher in this case. The dealers just kept upping the octane to levels even more epidemically deadly than heroin alone. Now more than 6 in 10 overdose deaths involve opioids, and the number of overdose deaths has quadrupled just since 1999. Fentanyl is now involved in more than half of the drug deaths. As a record-breaking heat wave gripped the southwest U.S. this week, climate scientists were warning it'll get worse. Worse than the 120-plus degree temperatures being recorded in Nevada and Arizona. University of Hawaii researchers say that if the greenhouse gas emissions continue at their present rate, three-fourths of the planet will be exposed to deadly heat waves by the year 2100. The world's seen nearly 2,000 deadly heat waves just since 1980. 9,000 Americans have died from the heat since then. A 1995 heat wave in Chicago killed 700 people in one swoop. The researchers looked at nearly 800 deadly heat waves and took humidity into account. They found, not surprisingly, the higher the humidity, the more deadly the heat. This is even worse news for the tropics and subtropics, but it's projected to affect 74% of planet Earth. Two people have already died in the heat wave now gripping the southwest, and a powerful tropical depression has now made landfall along the rain-soaked Gulf Coast between Houston and New Orleans. Uber founder told to get a cab, Melissa McCarthy chases away Sean Spicer, and all the fun stuff in the third and final segment, up next. It is very, very important that you show your support for this newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page, and you'll get the same great prices as always. If you believe in what we're doing here together, it's extremely important. You go to buzzburbank.com, click on that link, and then bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're just shopping Amazon for the first time, going through my link, even just once, helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door. And in two days or less for Prime members, 
I can't say enough about how much I enjoy Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music and books and more. And please use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shop through my link, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by simply clicking on the PayPal button just below that Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. Travis Kalanick won't be coming back from his leave of absence. He won't be returning to the hugely successful app-based company he founded. Kalanick has announced that at the request of the board at Uber, he has resigned as CEO. He'll stay on the board as a member. The company is rebuilding itself at the top after a long list of scandals involving employees and customers. More than 50,000 people deleted the Uber app from their phones because of those scandals. There were lawsuits and charges and investigations, and the board decided it was time for the founder to step aside. No matter how offensive it may be, free speech is free speech so long as it doesn't threaten or incite violence or endanger. That's the First Amendment principle upheld this week by the U.S. Supreme Court, knocking down a patent office decision to take trademark protection away from Washington, D.C.'s NFL team. The patent office had ruled that since the term Redskins is offensive to many Native Americans, it should not be sanctioned with a government trademark protection. But the policy was challenged by an Asian-American musician whose rock band is named The Slants. Simon Tan was turned away by the Patent and Trademark Office, so he took him to court, all the way to the Supreme Court. Simon will now get his trademark, which he says takes the word back from those who used it to demean Asians. And the Redskins will find it easier to remain the Redskins. The Supreme Court ruled this week that speech cannot be banned just for being offensive. Sex offenders in North Carolina can go back on Facebook because of another unusual Supreme Court case this week about free speech. In 2008, North Carolina passed a law banning registered sex offenders from websites that can be accessed by minors. Lester Packingham made the mistake of posting his thanks to Jesus when he got out of a traffic ticket, while a Durham, North Carolina police officer was patrolling for sex offenders on Facebook. Packingham sued over his arrest, Despite his 30-year designation as a registered sex offender, he felt his basic right to free speech was being violated, and the U.S. Supreme Court has now agreed. The court ruled the government may not suppress legal speech in an effort to prevent illegal speech. In New York State, they've just raised the minimum age at which people can get married. The threshold had been 14 in New York. And at that level, New York State had nearly 4,000 people get married when they were under 18 years of age last year. Under a law just passed and signed, the legal age is now 17. More than half of our states have no laws establishing a legal age for marriage, leaving it instead to a judge. A flag can change its stripes, in Philadelphia, as Pride Month continues, they've introduced a new take on the gay pride rainbow flag that's been around since 1978. This new flag also features brown and black stripes to represent minorities within a minority. Each stripe on the flag has meaning, so black and brown stripes don't break any new ground, except to give the flag even more color. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer doesn't want to be on camera anymore, as he has mostly been as the president's spokesman. Spicer's now looking to handle communications behind the scenes. He and White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus started looking for Spicer's replacement this week. Their first choice is former Fox News anchor Laura Ingram, although when they offered her the job after Trump won, she said she'd only take it if they would let her help set policy. Spicer and the press didn't get along from the very start when he attacked them at his very first briefing for being shamefully wrong about the size of the inauguration crowd. It may have been the impression of Spicer by Melissa McCarthy on Saturday Night Live that began to push Spicer out of the spotlight. Trump was reportedly upset by Melissa's impression and upset that it had gone viral and become so popular that SNL had McCarthy back repeatedly. Quoting a Trump campaign donor, Trump doesn't like his people to look weak. 
In India, the government's come under fire for a pamphlet that appears to encourage pregnant women to avoid meat and sex. That advice has no basis in science, and doctors say it's dangerous. The Indian government's Council for Research in Yoga and Naturopathy say avoiding meat and sex, desire, really, helps expectant mothers become more spiritual. Doctors in India were outraged, worried about protein and iron deficiencies in women who might avoid meat. And the pamphlet does not specifically recommend that pregnant women avoid sex, but to avoid the lust that leads to sex. Yoga got a boost this week with a new study that shows it can be every bit as effective as physical therapy in many cases, effective at relieving back pain and making movement easier in about 12 weeks in about half the people who gave it a shot. The benefits from those 12 weeks lasted for a year afterward. Quoting one convert, now I'm helping myself instead of relying on medication. Yoga can cost 20 bucks a session and insurance doesn't usually cover it. Yesterday was International Yoga Day, in which this year 300,000 people took part in one session in India. It made the Guinness Book of World Records. The Indian government has promised to open free yoga centers across that country. Yoko Ono is now billed as co-writer of the John Lennon anthem, Imagine. The National Music Publishers Association made it so after hearing an audio recording of John Lennon saying that the song should have been credited as a Lennon-Ono song. Their son, Sean Ono Lennon, calls it the proudest day of his life. The death of actress Carrie Fisher got even more tragic this week when we learned that she died from apnea and heart disease. But heroin, cocaine, and ecstasy were found to have been in her system when she collapsed with a heart attack on that flight from London to L.A. Fisher was 60 years old, and she'd done the coke within a few days of her death. The coroner says it was this combination of drugs and conditions that led to her death. Her mother, Debbie Reynolds, passed the next day. Cars 3 was the box office winner this week with $54 million in tickets sold in the U.S. and Canada. Wonder Woman slipped to second place, but with another gonzo, $41 million. All Eyes on Me was third with $27 million, and The Mummy was fourth. What's new this week? For theaters and showtimes, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. From our Embarrassing Parents Department, at Texas State University, incoming freshman Avery Leilani was dropped off for orientation by her mom. Later, Avery found photos of her mom on Twitter, posing with shirtless college football players. Mom had posted the pictures from campus with the message, I made some friends. Don't wait up. Move over, pizza rat. There's now video from New York in which a rat drags an entire bag of garbage from the curb across a sidewalk and close to the hole from which he scurried. At that point, the rat gets into the bag, grabs some pizza crust, of course, since that appears to be what New York City rats eat, and goes back into his hole. A scientist said this week, we really should be studying these creatures since they carry so much disease. Meanwhile, as the objects that get dragged by rats get larger and their strength grows, I'll keep you posted. After about 20 years in New York, Louie has finally moved back home to the sea. Louie is what they named a lobster that arrived at a restaurant in Hempstead, New York, 32 years ago. He was already over 100 years old when he arrived, too old to eat for the wise lobster connoisseur. Someone did actually offer to buy Louie just last week, but Butch, the owner of this clam bar, had already made his decision. When Butch bought the restaurant over 10 years ago, Louie came with it. This year, in National Lobster Month, Louie would be set free at the young old age of 132. Experts say Louie is likely to continue to survive back in the sea. In New Hampshire, meanwhile, a beer company just built the world's biggest lobster roll. It was 159 feet long, beating the old record, as I'm sure you know, by more than 30 feet. It was made with 10 pounds of celery, 4 gallons of mayonnaise, and about 200 pounds of lobster. 
There are certain things strangers should not discuss. Politics, religion, math. When you're standing in line at a deli near Pennsylvania's Duquesne University, there's a sign above the big peanut butter cups that reads, please refrain from discussing mathematics while waiting in line. A math professor from Duquesne was in that line and wondered, what could have happened to make them put up that sign? Other Twitter users had a field day, including one math nerd who posted, technically, it's a line segment. Maybe Alabama police long for the exotic nature of crime in Florida. A Moulton City, Alabama police officer posted a fake mugshot on the department's Facebook page, complete with a picture of his fictional suspect with this terrified yet goofy expression. Officer Russell Graham named this suspect Barry Larry Terry. He posted that Barry Larry Terry had been arrested on charges of unlawful possession of a raccoon and no headlamp on bicycle. Other Facebook users got the joke and set up an equally insincere page called Free Barry Larry Terry. The original police department post got more likes than there are people in Moulton, Alabama. For a little while, it felt like Florida. And finally, from the actual home office in Florida, how do you drive crazy people looking for a place to charge their phones or laptops at the airport? A Twitter user with the handle Just Basic Dave used stickers that look like standard electrical outlets. He placed them at the usual height, about a foot off the floor, on a pillar that was dark enough to make the outlet really show up. Dave got his stickers through Amazon. Just saying. People at Miami International saw those familiar shapes and ran to claim their precious discovery, electrical power. It fooled everyone who tried it. And they all left the sticker there for the next victim. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.